right. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to LSE and to this uh, event organized by the Middle East uh, Center. I am Federica Vicky, and I am a lecturer in the Department of International Relations here at uh, LSE. And I'm very happy that we have two very distinguished guests tonight here to address a very topical issue. Renegotiating the terms of EU-Israel partnership, normative power and international law. Uh, our main speaker is Charles Shamas of the McKean Group. Um, difficult to kind of uh, um, Surprise in a couple of words what uh, John Zemaster does and do, has done. But um, let's say that he is, uh, has been focusing on human rights practice and he's one of the people who has been looking at what the EU has been doing in its external relations with uh, Israel. And I hope that he's going to enlighten us on this uh, uh, topic, which can be quite uh, obscure, even for people like me. Um, so, and we have also a great discussion, Daniel Levy, uh, who is uh, the director of the Middle East and North Africa program uh, at the uh, European Center on Foreign uh, Relations, sorry, Council, sorry, European Council on, on Foreign Relations, uh, who is going to act as a discussion to Charles. Uh, the format for everybody is that Charles will um, deliver his main presentation in half an hour, 40 minutes uh, maximum, and then we'll have Daniel Levy, who's going to open the uh, discussion, and then we're going to move straight into uh, Q&A, and you will all be welcome to come in with questions and uh, comments. But without further ado, chance. Well, thank you very much. I hope my voice projects enough, but raise your hand if you can hear me, please. Um, thank you for having me at LSE. It's a pleasure to be here and to see this good audience. Um, I'd just like to ask you all one question. Would you raise your hand if you have any background in law? Just so I have an idea of what we've got and how I should pitch what I'm Okay. My hand goes down. Yes. <laughs> well, you only have to comment. Um, okay. I'm, I'm now going to start with the idea of normative action, because this is Federica's really uh, strong interest and passion. Uh, the EU as a normative actor, or normative Europe. Normative. We are all normative actors. Dogs and cats are normative actors. And the EU is a normative actor, too. What's a normative actor? Well, a normative actor basically has some system of internal self-regulation that controls how they act and how they deal with information or events occurring outside them. And they can't help themselves. This is not 
a situation in which a normative actor uses the word ought and says, what should I do? What ought I do? A normative actor says, this is what I must do. We are normative actors at a very low level of bi our biology when we keep our balance, when we ride a bicycle. We have an idea of the state of affairs, the balance, the order of things that we wish to conserve. Okay? And we take action when it's threatened. Sometimes it has to do with the state of affairs in us, our blood pressure, our body temperature, equilibrium. Moment. Yeah. Sometimes it has to do with the state of affairs around us. We see, for example, a glass falling off a shelf when we run to catch it. Okay. We don't think, what ought I do? We know what we must do. Now, this is the idea of normative action that I think is often missing in the literature that thinks that there's something special about the EU as a normative actor. Normative actors sometimes think they have to conquer the world and subject, subjugate people. That's their normative construction. That's their system of self-regulation. Normative actors do good deeds because they feel they have to, not because they think they look good, or they want to satisfy somebody, or they want to be judged well. Now, the key to the EU's normative action as it concerns Israel and as it concerns the, what I would say is redefinition of the relationship that is occurring now, has to do with the elements of the EU's legal framework, its own system of internal self-regulation. And the following are the elements that I will focus on. First, the principle that is articulated repeatedly by the European Court of Justice in its case law. The EU shall respect international law in the exercise of its powers. The EU must respect international law in the exercise of its powers. That's a quote from the case law. Second, the EU respects international law under the treaties, and it promotes respect for international law. That's a value. Does it do it because it's in the treaty? Or is it in the treaty because it thinks that that was what it has to do? I would argue the latter. It doesn't help, it doesn't hurt to have it in the treaty. Why? Because we all change. We all forget what we thought was and understood was necessary. We forget what we knew. And sometimes we need to be reminded. So law is a good holding mechanism to ensure that it's like a time machine. It was made at one error reflecting what the normative actor felt they must do. <clears throat> and it carries forward later on when the normative actor starts thinking, I have other things I must do. Then you have in the treaties the provisions that require the EU to maintain consistency between its activities and its policies. Some of its policies have to do with policies 
let's say, the application of international law, first of all, complying with it itself, secondly, assessing the lawfulness in international law of actions taken under other third countries' responsibility. So the EU has an obligation, it thinks, uh, to look at what's going on in the occupied territories and assess its conformity to international law as it understands it. And then it takes positions. It must take positions under the common foreign and security policy. Okay? It must say such and such a situation or set of acts is considered by the EU to be internationally wrongful or unlawful. So it has to make determinations. Then the EU has another principle in its legal framework, the customary principle called the duty of non-recognition. In the International Law Commission, the EU's, the Commission's delegate at the time of, that was when the Commission was running foreign affairs under RELEX, made statement to the International Law Commission saying, this duty of non-recognition, the duty not to recognize as lawful, or aid and assist in maintaining, sorry, the duty not to recognize international wrongful acts as lawful, or aid and assist in maintaining the situations created by them. Now that's a customary principle of international law. What does it mean to say that? It's that before it was articulated in the draft articles on state responsibility in this meeting of the International Law Commission or this process overseen by the, of the International Law Commission went on for decades. Before that happened, states felt they had to act this way. The reason it was called, it got customary status and was codified as such in, by the International Law Commission, was because states felt compelled to act that way. And they recognized that and they said, by golly, we all feel the same obligation. It's all over the place, so let's codify it and, it, and, and, and give it customary status. So, since the EU takes positions, <clears throat> analyzing the law, the legal status in international law of a lot of what Israel does in the occupied territories. And since it feels it can't help itself, it has to do that. The next thing that happens is the EU says, but I can't recognize as lawful acts or practices that I have determined to be internationally wrongful or unlawful. Now, what does that mean? As a normative actor, the EU is simply saying, I can't let myself give legal effect to a wrongful act that I have understood is wrongful within my own legal order. I can't let the wrongful action of another determine how I implement my own legislation. 
Now, the reason I'm going over this, I don't see too many glazed eyes, so I'll continue. The, re <laughs> the reason I'm, 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 I'm giving this introduction is I want you to get a sense of the mechanism and how it works that is responsible for the most serious and persistent disputes that have taken place between the EU and Israel over the past two decades. Now, all of these disputes arose from one problem. The EU constructed a privileged relationship with Israel, let's say in the case of the association agreement, a privileged trading relationship, a free trade relationship. And when you construct a privileged relationship, you open up your sovereign borders to the effects of the other's practice. So it starts affecting you, raising your blood pressure, for example. Okay? In this case, the practices of Israel were practices of extending its uh, exercise of sovereign authority into the occupied territories. This is the bottom line that is uh, manifested in the settlement process. The construction of a whole system of legislation by the state of Israel for the purpose of settling and normalizing the status of its nationals, the settlers, uh, that had been unlawfully transferred into the occupied territory by acts of the state of Israel facilitating and normalizing their movement from within the territory of the state of Israel into the occupied territories. I can't enumerate all of the elements of this process that we can summarize as Israel's extension of its exercise of sovereign authority into the occupied territories or over the occupied territories. But most everything that everybody complains about is wrongful and in need of being opposed is basically an emanation of that particular process. And where does it start from? Well, Israel's own legal framework. You think that the settlement process and the treatment of the occupied territories as part of the territory of the state of Israel are some whim of their political leadership? Well, in 1948, one of the basic pieces of Israeli legislation that was enacted <clears throat> Administrative Ordinance Number 29 defines irreversibly, until it, unless it's repealed by the Knesset, which is highly unlikely, it defines the nature of the relationship of the State of Israel to the entire territory of Mandatory Palestine. This is in 1948. The actual act of legislation states that should the Israel Defense Force establish effective control over some part of mandatory Palestine. Upon the issuance of a declaration to that effect by the Minister of Defense, 
Israeli domestic law must be applied. In other words, it must become effectively annexed. And this is why Israel says it doesn't have any final international borders. Its own legislation, that particular piece of legislation, does not permit Israel. It preempts the possibility of its applying the law of belligerent occupation to any part of the occupied Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Why? Because under its own legislation, Israel is solely confident as a state to determine how any part of the territory of mandatory Palestine can be and shall be governed. It can let the minister, assuming, of course, it has established effective control militarily over that part of, the, of, the, of Palestine. It can, by virtue of the declaration of its Minister of Defense, annex the territory. Or it can decide to govern it as an administered territory, its own administered territory, but under a different regime, a military government, which is what it does. Now, this is Israel's character as a normative actor. This is how Israel defines itself. And it's very important that Europeans understand this. Because the issues that have come up between the EU and Israel are issues of incompatibility, of fundamental incompatibility of the system of self-regulation, the normative order of those two entities. Now, I'll give you an example to operationalize it so you get the sense how it works. So I'll take the issue of origin rule. In accordance with Israel's legal framework, it negotiated repeatedly with the EU preferential trade agreements within which the territorial scope of their applicability was defined by the term the territory of the state of Israel. Now in the law of treaties, unless a term is defined specifically within the treaty, each party to the treaty must define, not just can, they must define the term as it is defined in their national legislation. The term the territory of the state in Israel is defined in Israel's national law as incorporating all of mandatory Palestine that it happens to have established effective control over. Now, Israel can't help itself. That's the way it views the world. Huh? Okay. Now, the EU takes the idea of non-particularism very seriously. Israel is very particularistic. Its own internal legislation defines the status of the territory, the occupied territories, in a way that is not in agreement with anybody else's idea. The EU says, I follow international law. I listen to what the International Court of Justice says. 
I listen to what the Security Council says. I'm bound to be a multilateralist. And that's part of its bones. That's part of its normative order. Its system of legislation and its case law in the Court of Justice reflects this characteristic. It can't help itself but be that. So here you have a preferential trade agreement, which Israel and the EU conclude. And the EU says, I don't want a headache. I'll use a term that Israel can interpret one way, according to its legal framework, and I can interpret another way, in accordance with my legal framework. So for the EU, well, for Israel, let's say, and for the EU for many years, it just turned away, didn't look. Israel was applying the agreement to all of the occupied territories. We actually took this matter up, and this is the work we do. We look at how states and the EU construct their actual relationships with Israel. And lo and behold, we have to first of all say, is there anything in EU legislation that would prevent the EU from accepting Israel's application of the trade agreements to the occupied territories? Well, we found it. We found it in a 1986 council regulation to start with. Then we found it in the repeated declarations and positions taken by the foreign ministers of the member states stating to their parliament that the association agreement could not be applied to the occupied territories, and informing their parliaments formally of this fact before the parliaments voted to ratify at the national level the association agreement. Now, once the EU was stuck, its own legal order did not permit it to give legal effect to Israel's application of the agreement to the occupied territories. It meant that it had to stop permitting its customs authorities to grant preferential treatment under the agreement to the settlement products or even Palestinian products produced in the occupied territories. In other words, the EU could not get out of the fact that the agreement's territorial clause could not be interpreted as including any part of the occupied territory. So, the first requirement of a normative actor was met. It had no political choice on this matter. It couldn't help itself, even if it wanted to. Then you have the second part. The EU found that having constructed this agreement this way, and having allowed Israel to apply it, because Israel had the right to apply the agreement to the occupied territories according to its, in accordance with its own legal framework. The EU couldn't win a dispute with Israel on this matter. But at the same time, the EU couldn't implement its own legislation correctly. Why? What's the legislation we're talking about? Well, tax and customs law. 
duties have to be correctly collected on imported merchandise. Customs officials cannot exempt from duty merchandise that must have duty paid on it. So we were able to show that the EU's customs officials and customs services and member states could not implement EU legislation correctly. So this was painful to the EU's body. The deficient implementation of its own law is like your body acting up. You get a stomachache. That's a normative action. Its own law could not be correctly implemented and it had to do something about it. Well, this started in 1995 and it produced the story, a long odyssey, of attempts by the EU and the member states to find a way to end the deficient implementation of EU legislation. Why? The EU has to have a rule of law. It falls apart if it can't implement its legislation correctly. That's a big normative foundation of the EU. Yeah. Now, since then, there have been many, many other cases of deficient implementation of EU legislation that have been pointed out because the EU constructed various engagements and privileged relations with Israel in a manner that permitted Israel to implement them in accordance with the un internationally unlawful elements of its legal framework, effectively huh, asserting its sovereign authority over the occupied territories. Now, some of you may have heard about, or many of you probably, the, the publication of the guidelines. The guidelines are the commission guidelines that govern the set of conditions under which the commission and any agency or authority employing EU funds to support Israeli entities or their activities. These are the conditions that it must, that, that must be conformed to. Why? Because in recent years, repeatedly, settlement-based entities and activities being carried out in the settlements were receiving EU funding and participating in different EU programs. And when this thing was brought to life, the EU started saying, ouch, it hurt. It couldn't allow itself to continue this situation. Not that it decided, I want to be tough with Israel, which is what many people in the political science game like to talk about. Huh? It had no choice. I can give you many examples, but there isn't time, and I don't want to take too much time. Yeah? Pardon? You can have the time for an example. Okay, I'll give you another example. Okay? You have, let's say, we'll take the Europol agreement. There is an agreement that the, that the EU and Israel began to negotiate in early 2010. It's an operational cooperation agreement between Europol, which is the European police organization, and Israel. Israel's national police. Now, 
Europol has a lot of interest, and Israel has a lot of interest in the kind of cooperation that enables them to exchange data and information on criminal activities occurring in both of their territories. The same criminal activity has part of it here and part of it there. And on that basis, law enforcement agencies like to exchange information. If they don't exchange information with another law enforcement agency, it doesn't have that same criminal activity going on under its jurisdiction. That's the key thing. The problem was that Europol has a few normative obligations under its own legislation. Data protection law, which means you may not process information on persons that was obtained unlawfully. To be processable, information must be obtained lawfully. There's one standard of lawfulness. Another one, which is a variant and a more specific version of this. It's in the Europol statute, it says information that has clearly been obtained in obvious violation of human rights may not be processed. How do you know when you're exchanging information with another law enforcement entity huh? that you can safely receive information from it and assume that the information conforms to the standards you must ensure are conformed to within your own legal order. Well, normally what happens is, is the EU for any kind of privileged relationship which creates reliance of one on the other to and each one has to begins to depend on the other. The other controls their ability to implement their own legislation correctly when you have a privileged relationship. That's always what happens. No? So Europol normally says, I can't conclude an operational cooperation agreement unless the human rights regime of the third country and its data protection <coughs> level of data protection are at least equivalent to that of the EU's. Then I can safely send data and receive data and not worry about being unable to implement my own legislation fully and effectively. Because when you have data, you're responsible for ensuring it retains that same standard of protection, whatever you do with it. You can't send it to another if it's not going to be protected adequately, as you must protect it. So the issue of equivalence and adequacy are very important. So it took a little while, but then you realize that then we have to call the attention of Europol and a few member states to the, non the absence of this equivalence, particularly the fact that Israel treats data that it obtains from practices that routinely violate fundamental human rights in the occupied territories, it treats them as lawfully obtained. It channels some of that information into the national police data files for the purpose, whenever it wants to use it, to bring prosecution in Israeli courts against Palestinians accused of crimes under Israeli law. So suddenly you have a situation where there are two standards of data in the Israeli system, the law enforcement systems. And Europol cannot permit itself to receive and process 
one of that subsets of data, because it was acquired sometimes in obvious violation of human rights. In any case, the human rights regime applied by Israel was manifestly inferior to the minimum standard required by, by Europol to be able to process information obtained on Britain. The information was not lawfully obtained also when national police, Israel's domestic authority, were engaged in activities in the settlements or in East Jerusalem on the basis of Israeli domestic legislation. Because when national police are operating on the basis of Israeli domestic legislation or applying Israel's domestic law, in any part of the occupied territories, this cannot be recognized by the EU. Why? It contravenes the law of occupation. The territory is not, for the EU, the territory of the state of Israel in which Israel's domestic legislation may be applied. So, Poor Europol, they wanted, this, this all came out in 2010. Now, a lot of the smaller member states that are very activist and pro-Palestinian and say we want to liberate Palestine and free you from the occupation, said, ouch, I don't know what to do about this. Go bring us a big member state. So we went to Germany. Now, as you know, Germany is a country that bends over backwards to insist that politically it is committed to engage Israel and to intensify the relationship with Israel. But Germany is also a country that respects rules and laws. So, in a conference with the uh, Ministry of Interior's constitutional lawyers, they looked at the memo, they asked a few questions, or maybe an hour's worth, and then they put the papers like that, and they said, it's obviously we, Germany cannot permit this agreement to be concluded. This was in 2010. What they realized is that they have to begin insisting that Israel accept certain what we call additional conditions. You'll see the reference to this in the guideline. You'll see the reference to this in the Horizon 2020 instruments. This is the program that uh, where suddenly the EU is now into special conditions, additional conditions. Why? We can't safely include privileged engagements with Israel on the assumption that what it does, that its practice and everything it does can be accepted by us. Secondly, in the origin rules case, some of you may have heard, the first thing the, Euro the European Union tried to do was say to Israel, we can't stop applying <coughs> the agreement to the occupied territories and issuing preferential proofs of origin covering settlement products because we made this agreement with you the way we did. But please provide us with information that will at least enable us to unilaterally distinguish eligible from ineligible products under our own law. And that's why the Israelis came around and said finally, okay, we'll put postal codes. <laughs> and you can figure out where those postal codes are. Okay? 
And the EU struggled with this for years and is still struggling with it because it's an inadequate solution and it fails to enable the EU and member states to implement customs law, EU customs law, fully and effectively. So then you had with the Europol in 2010, another big example, Germany said we can't do this. My God. So what happens? A working group of member states scratches it. What do we have to put into this agreement to solve this problem? We want to have this agreement with Israel. They concluded that they had to do is make Israel apply the distinction itself. To distinguish the subsets of its practice and the information resulting from it that the EU could not accept and permit itself to give legal effect to act as if it was lawful in EU law. So they had to distinguish those from the subsets that could be lawfully processed by Europe. How to do that? So they said, well, Israel will have to track all of the activities that resulted in the production of the information and any information stemming from any activities of Israeli authorities in the occupied territories has to be flagged so that we will throw it out and say we can't process it under the agreement, or Europol could receive information from other countries that wasn't under an operational cooperation agreement and processes, but they would have to put it through special checks to make sure that they could lawfully process it. It didn't violate human, it didn't result from violations of human rights. So since 2010, that negotiation has been headlong. Why? The EU was saying to Israel, we have, you have to apply the distinction we have to apply. You have to apply the distinction that we must apply within our own legal order based on international law. And to this day, the member states are struggling to find a way, a lawful way, where they can permit an agreement to be concluded that will not compromise the EU's ability to implement its own, or Europol's ability to implement its legislation, its legal obligations, fully and effectively. In connection with the Europol agreement in 2000, February 2011, the EU decided, we're having trouble with Israel in this negotiation, we're going to tell it in the the statement that the EU made to the Association Council of February 2011. They said with respect to the Europol agreement, quote, the necessary condition, the, sorry, the necessary provisions are made for the correct territorial application of this and other instruments. They signaled that this was going to go horizontal across all areas of the EU Israel relationship. <clears throat> they said, but we have to tell Israel that that's what's going to happen. We're fair. Huh? The next thing that happened was in 2012 May. Well, by that time, the problem was not that they, they'd made, they'd fixed EU legislation on Europol so that the necessary internal rules existed to prevent Europol, to force Europol 
not to process any information obtained by Israeli authorities from activities <coughs> in occupied territory. Now the problem was, now that we forced ourselves not to allow our own law to give legal effect or recognize as lawful what we consider wrongful Israeli acts, how are we going to implement our own law correctly? The customs problem of the origin rules wasn't a really a promising solution. And that's when the EU said in May, both in the Council conclusions, May 2012 Council conclusions and statements to the EU as with Association Council of 2012. It simply referred to this. Reaffirmed. The member states and the EU reaffirmed their commitment to the full and effective implementation of EU legislation. Imagine telling Israel that you're insisting on implementing your own law correctly. But it is an EU-Israel issue. The renegotiation of the terms of the EU-Israel relationship that are now taking place, are, it's a rocky road, it's politically fraught. In each case, additional conditions must be placed on Israel that effectively require Israeli authorities and Israeli non-state actors in some manner to conform their practice to the rules of international law that Israel refuses to recognize are applicable and refuses to respect. Now, that's when a normative actor who says, I have no choice, I have to keep my own housekeeping in order. That's when that normative actor begins to generate compliance code. That's when the process of enforcement that is not based on carrots and sticks acting as a policeman, acting as an authority over another. It has to do with telling the other, if you want to engage me, you have to respect my own need to implement my legislation fully and effectively, and you have to accommodate your practice to that need, or I can't do it with you. I often give the example of the vegan who wants, I want to have a vegan come to dinner. Huh? Well, I have to reorganize my whole approach to preparing the meal. Huh? Okay. I may not believe, and Israel doesn't have to believe and accept the EU's position. I don't have to accept the vegans' position, but I have to respect the vegans' need to comply with their own obligations. And Israel has to respect the EU's need to comply with its own obligations. Now, this is an unusual paradigm. It's really drawn from life. I can give you lots of examples. You probably can think of lots of examples. It's not rocket science. But it is a very important thing in one respect. It is the one engine of international law enforcement that is not subject to political discretion. It is the one area in which the EU, as it, with its institutional rigidity and its own existential imperatives, can effectively project its values, and does project its values, both in the, under the enlargement policy and increasingly in the, under the neighborhood policy. Simply, not because it wants other states to be like it and, and, and wants to lord it over them, 
but because if it wants to get closer to other states, and, and privileged relations always create dependencies and reliances on the practice of the other state to enable you to comply with your own obligations. So the EU is going to have to do that. And that means every time the EU thinks it doesn't want to see the efficient implementation of its own legislation, we have to remind it, because when we do expose that deficiency, it has no choice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Over to you. Yeah. So why I'm sitting here is <coughs> not that I was invited. Um, I, I, I find this intriguing, and I want to share the dilemma that, 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 that I have <coughs> off, the back of, um, off the back of having read Charles's work and, and listened to this pre uh, presentation with you. Um, and I, I think I have to have a, a point of departure for this, and my point of departure, which is, is probably important to put out there, is the following. Um, I don't share Federica's passion for um, the EU as a normative actor. Um, I share a passion for the idea that um, Palestinians can live in dignity and freedom with rights and that Israelis cannot be a source for denying that dignity and freedom of rights, and therefore uh, that the, the Israelis themselves can live with dignity and freedom, because I don't think uh, there's any question as to the morally corrupting nature uh, of, of, um, of Israeli practices and policies for Israeli and Israelis themselves. And my second point of departure is <clears throat> that impunity for Israel in pursuing a set of policies uh, that deny those rights and freedoms has really, unsurprisingly, not been a fantastic educational tool uh, for the Israeli public and Israeli politicians as to whether to continue to apply uh, a set of policies which serially violate international law or whether to move on to a different page and to cease those policies. And therefore, as someone who is coming at it from that angle, the question of how do you impact Israeli thinking? How do you move beyond impunity? How do you set a different incentive, disincentive structure for Israeli behavior vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians and the territories uh, exercises quite a lot of my time. Um, and it's something I feel, without fundamentally addressing that, I don't see how we how we change the, the Israeli-Palestinian picture, unless um, out of nowhere, strategic, far-sighted, and progressive Israeli political leadership were to emerge. Uh, however, that doesn't seem, uh, no, okay. Um, I don't have to spend too long on that point. Now, my working assumption is that an edifice that has been built up 
over whether it's 46 years or, 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 or things to do with from 48 onwards. Um, but certainly when it comes to the occupation, an edifice that has been built up over 46 years, my assumption has been that that is politically driven and will be politically reversed. And the idea that a eureka legal moment in the interaction between Israel and Europe it could lead to an unraveling where, where yeah, at some moment the Israelis turn around and say, fair cop, you got us. We just cannot overcome the, the, the sharpest legal minds of the EASS and those <laughs> behind them and the rulings of the law courts. However, I can't allow myself to be quite so dismissive or flippant because the political route has proven so patently hopeless uh, until now. Hence, I am um, intrigued <laughs> by everything that has just been set before us. However, <clears throat> um, and there is a however, I'll, and I'll raise a couple of, 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 uh, of thoughts to, to unpack that however for you. One is to do with the degree of discomfort cost and public debate that continuing down the track that, that has been outlined for us necessarily would cause to the, to the uh, Israeli leadership. Is it significant enough? I don't know. On the one hand, you could say we have decades of, of cumulative experience. On the other, as I think it's only fair to acknowledge off the back of Charles' presentation, you could say that there's been a relatively rapid development from 2010 to 2011 to 2012 to 2013. For me, what happens with Horizon 2020, this research and development program, um, where the directive is, is, is next due to be applied, will be a, 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 an important litmus test. For me, the litmus test is that if the Israelis can end up getting on board with Horizon 2020, whatever way of explaining to their public what they signed, what they didn't sign, as long as there is not a political hullabaloo around Israel getting on board this program, from which Israel benefits greatly, uh, especially Israel's R&D, technology scientific community, um, then we're in one place. And then uh, I, I, I'd be even more skeptical about the ability to progress down, down this route as a way of leading to an Israeli rethink and ultimately an Israeli change in policy. However, if that's not the case, if either Israel doesn't uh, participate, or there is a huge political uh, tumult over Israel's participation or non-participation, then, then, I, then I think we're, we're, we're in uncharted territory in terms of the potential for this. Um, continuing down this path, I mean, looking at that Europol example, and, I'm, and I'm, I may be getting the wrong end of the stick here, but I think with many of these things that um, 
applying the one area that is not subject to political discretion in the EU-Israel relationship, applying that correctly, many of these things Israel may decide it's a lot more bother than what it's worth. And so we don't have the Europol agreement. And I could even say that about Horizon 2020 and the R&D. And maybe tomorrow we'll see the Sheldon Adelson Fund for Israeli research and development. Um, Israel has the two things it most needs from this relationship already. I, I would say, which is preference for the free trade agreement and the ability for Israelis to travel. Visa-free across Europe. Unless those are affected, I can see Israel saying, you know what, if, if, if there are ways, and, and if you think the vast quantities that Israel has wasted, has been willing to expend, the Israeli taxpayer has been willing to see poured into this occupation settlement enterprise, then losing some potential commercial advantages here or there, I'm, just, I'm not sure if Israel, if they'll just say, you know what, Europe needs us as much as we, we, we need Europe. And by the way, certain, <coughs> certain um, EU member states, Israel is a very important trade partner, especially in certain fields, in, in, in R&D, obviously as a weapons uh, exporter and manufacturer and, 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 and center of excellence in uh, research and development, um, Intel sharing. So this is, this is a two-way relationship and Israel, of course, can, can look elsewhere uh, for certain of its, uh, of, its, of, its, um, of its global relations and the things it needs from its international interaction. Which, which takes me to this place where I think that, that unless, you see, I tend to think that unless politics is put back into the mix, this isn't going to get very far. With one, with two caveats. One is, like I said, let's see where it goes. One could also say that 2010 to where we are today or, or, or is, is a rapid acceleration and wait and see the things that come down the pipeline. But I'll come back to that political point in a moment. The other thing is how far is Europe going to be willing to go? Because of course, at some level, as any Israeli would acknowledge, it's, it's, a, it's a very artificial line to draw. Every Israeli bank, every major Israeli bank has a branch in the occupied territories. Now, is that something that gets caught up in this one area that is not subject to... <laughs> Charles is making a head gesture which is suggesting an affirmative response to that. Um, because clearly it could get interesting. <laughs> now, for it to get interesting, one has to have faith in the European-Israeli political levels not finding a get-around route out of the, the, um, the situation that they can find themselves in. So, you know, that, that, those for me are going to be the test cases. Several products, minor. Economically tiny. Insignificant. 
um, entities based in the settlements, Israeli entities based in the settlements, likewise. So I think you know, I think that's where that's where my dilemma is. Um, <clears throat> three last points. Number one, the timeline. My assumption has been that the timeline in which this these this path, absent politics, and I'm not and Charles by the way is is saying and not saying absent politics at once, but maybe he's actually saying absent politics. No. Okay. Um, I you um, but the timeline according to which this may play out, absent politics, um, given that <coughs> neither party wants to bring this to a head. I mean, the, the, the aim right now is to, is to reach, at the political level, is to say, you know, how can we get the horizon 2020 done? The Israelis want to be on board, the Europeans want the Israelis on board. How, that's, the, that's the autopilot is how do we resolve problems. Um, so I'm saying the timeline at which he's beginning to, to, to have a, an effect that, that is manifest in the Israeli system in some way, or could be a rather long timeline. Um, number two, I'd say that um, I guess I, I guess I also have a visceral difficulty with the idea that it wouldn't be Palestinian political agency or Israeli political agency or the political agency of people of goodwill who want to support uh, a different reality for Palestinians and by extension for Israelis, but rather a, 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 a gotcha legal clause uh, <laughs> that's, that's going to drive change here. Um, so, so and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that at some stage that's going to be the mixture. At some stage the mixture is, if, if it, I mean indeed if, if one would pursue this route, that at some stage the, um, at some stage this translates into pivoting from the legal to the political and back again and back, and there's a kind of symbiosis there. My last point is just the law of unintended consequences. Um, which is that you could go two ways. If, if this began to become onerous for an Israeli uh, political leadership, there are two directions you can go with this. One is to say, you know, we've been at, you know, we want a good relationship with Europe, it's going to extend beyond Europe. Uh, we'd better get in a similar normative space to them and we better radically redefine our relationship to the territories that we occupy and to the Palestinians, etc. But you could go a different place with this. Is that we better get on with redefining how the international community, including the Europeans, view these territories in international law. And that's why I call it a law of unintended consequences. Because if one looks at the current structure of the negotiations, I don't think it's unreasonable. I think it's an unlikely outcome, okay? Um, so I, I don't want to upfront say that, because I, I don't want to posit this as, as a, you know, trying to scare other people away from this direction. But I don't think it's an unreasonable 
thought uh, to attribute to Netanyahu the idea that what changed for him in 2009 in his speech where he said two states. I think what changed for Netanyahu is he would turn around and say, wait a minute. If I can sell the idea that it has no sovereignty, it has no capacity for self-defense, it has no territorial viability, it does nothing to redress historical wrongs, it has no foothold in Jerusalem, but if someone else, and especially if the Palestinians are going to accept calling it a state, why should I be the schmuck who says that's not a state? What do you mean that's a state? It has no sovereignty, it has none of the attributes that any of us would consider uh, necessary for statehood. And I just you know, put out that, like I say, I think it's unlikely, but it does worry me that you could have as an outcome of an agreement something far worse than Oslo, and that hems in the ability to pursue things, that, that limits the ability to pursue things like this uh, in quite significant ways. So that's why I kind of begin and end my comments saying that, that I find this intriguing. Um, I'm fascinated to see where it goes on the rise in 2020. Um, I fundamentally believe that uh, an Israeli system that is not shaken out of its complacency uh, of having been indulged for decades um, will not change, and therefore it needs to be shaken out of that complacency. But at some stage, something that takes 45 minutes to explain and that's really difficult, and something that can resonate in a public debate, need to meet. And I'm sure they would if it carried on moving forward. But that, those, are, those are my comments to what was a fascinating presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you.